You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. This sermon, this sermon today is a, a very, very serious sermon. And the songs that we have sung, to me, captivate in many ways the spirit for every African American in this room. When we are singing, whoa, 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 every African American ought to pull out of your very heart and your soul the deep depth of the anguish of what you've come through generations ago. That form of singing originated from the African-American in the fields across this state. And uh, if anyone should be singing loud, that part of that song is you. Because it comes from the depth of pain and suffering and sorrow, crying out to God for deliverance from the bondage of slavery. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we love you. And Lord, uh, Reggie gave me the difficult passage of dealing with slavery, of talking about slaves obeying their masters. And for every one of us in this room, as we look into Titus today, we have to grapple with the pain and the sorrow of our own history. So, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be tender to what you want to say to us today. Help us to grasp and understand not only the history of this nation and sometimes the dark secrets, the dark chapters of our history, but help us to put it in the light of your gospel. Help us to put it in the light of your holy scripture. And, Lord, speak to us today. Lord, cleanse me, forgive me. Let me be a tool in your hand today. Forgive me of any thought, any word out of my mouth. Lord, let me be a vessel that is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're in a racially divided nation today. We've taken 10 steps back. So Lord, today may there be healing. And God, may you do a great work today. Make us sensitive to your will, your plan. What do you want to say to us today? Lord, you've already spoken through the songs. And we give you glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Remain standing if you would. Children are going to begin to make their way to Children's Church. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Titus. Titus chapter 2. And uh, like I said, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture today that in many ways may be very difficult for us to navigate and and so I'm going to I'm going to do the best I can to do that but Titus chapter 2 picking up at verse 9 now last week Reggie did an excellent job of walking us through the first 8 verses basically talking to us about the makeup of a godly good congregation 
And I think what Reggie was saying, what every preacher would say, if you had a congregation like that, you would enjoy being their pastor. And I think that's what he was saying. And he broke down those relationships, not only talking about family, but more particularly older generation, older spiritually mature believers teaching younger spiritually uh, developing believers, old men teaching young men, old women teaching young women. And he walked us through the qualities or the characteristics of what makes a good discipler. Now, um, today we're dealing with a very difficult passage, and I'm going to approach it a little differently. I have to be honest, I did look at Reggie afterwards. I, we were talking in the office, I said, Reggie, you did a fantastic job, you did an excellent job. I just went on and on. I think it's one of the best messages that you've ever preached. I said, but why did you stop there and leave the passage on slavery to the old white guy? So uh, I've titled this message today, um, Eric, what are we to do with slavery as it is defined in the Bible? I don't know, Eric, if you can get all that on there, but what are we to do with slavery as it is defined in the Bible? And Paul picks up in verse 9. He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior in the NIV, it says, attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled. Reggie talked a lot about that last week. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. He's talking to Titus. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Let's pray again. Lord, we love you. And we pray, dear Lord, as we enter a two-part message, dear Lord, part one this week, part two next week. Give me wisdom, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. What are we to do with slavery as it is defined in the Bible? Now, real quickly, I could just simply say this. Over 50% of the Roman Empire were slaves, bond servants. Paul would often refer to himself in the Greek as doulos. And he would say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, servant, bond servant. So this was a common term. And in the Roman Empire, vast majority of people, if we had lived in those times, we would probably, all of us in this room, been slaves. Maybe not Jerry Seals, because Jerry's got money stashed away somewhere, and he might buy his freedom. But for all of us, regardless of our age or our color, we would all be slaves. It was not racially motivated. It was a way of life in the Roman Empire. But what are we to do? 
with slavery as it is defined in the Bible. And, and this is going to be a different kind of message, so I need you to listen and be very attentive. Years ago, years ago, there was a radio station called 99 Jam. And uh, I was one day going through my radio, and my radio, which scans, which stops. In the short amount of time, a song, a rap, I'm not sure, a song was about a man having sexual relationships with the mother and the daughter. And it was very, very explicit. Well, I listened to that, and it just raised my blood pressure quite a bit. So I, I thought about it, and uh, I, I thought, um, you know, I need, I need to do something. And so I went to 99 Jam, and, and I went to talk to the management. And I talked to an African-American businessman who was the manager of 99 Jam. And he and I got into a discussion that you probably could have heard a block away. He was rude, disrespectful. And at a certain point, as I began to bring up some history and remind him of history, he began to speak very derogatory of Abraham Lincoln. And at that point, standing up in 99 Jam, I said, Sir, I can tell you know nothing about your history. And this conversation is over. And I walked out. Later on, I thought, well, what can I do? Later on, I was with uh, a pastor, senior pastor of a very, very large church. And he made this statement about a particular mainline businessman in this city as I was sitting in his office that he was excited about what God was doing in this businessman's life. And before I could stop myself, I said, well, then I wish you would speak to him about advertising so much on 99 Jam." And if I told you the name of the pastor, told you the name of the businessman, you'd know, he would know him immediately. The next thing I knew, that businessman had pulled his advertising from that radio station. I think that when we look at race relations today, I really don't believe we are processing thinking clearly as Christians. And so what I want to do, I, I want to do a couple of things. Number one, there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to slavery, when it comes to our history, when it comes to the Civil War, and history as it pertains to the Civil War, slavery, civil rights, and all of that. Number two, the Bible has at times been used to justify slavery. In other words, during the time that slavery was a blight on this nation, there were men that stood in this sacred office and used the scripture to defend a slavery that was racially motivated and that is, again, one of the dark chapters of our own history in America. So I want to do two things, and I'm going to be sensitive to time. Now, I didn't set, you know, Reggie set his alarm clock. You remember last week, and Reggie, that really impressed me. <laughs> I didn't set my alarm clock, but you keep me a little bit, keep me a little close here. 
I want to read to you, first of all, this is called the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. It said, no book except perhaps Uncle Tom's Cabin had as powerful an impact on the abolitionist movement as the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. But while Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, and let me remind you when uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, when she met the president, President Lincoln, Lincoln looked at her, this little woman, little uh, white lady, shook her hand and said, so this is the little lady that started this great war that we are in. Uncle, Tom, Uncle Tom's Cabin was a tool in the hand of God to wake the nation up to the atrocities of slavery. But in this, but while Stowe wrote about imaginary characters, Douglas's book is the record of his own remarkable life. He was born a slave in 1818 on a plantation in Maryland. Douglas taught himself to read and to write. In 1845, seven years after escaping to the north, he published Narrative, the first of three autobiographies. This book calmly but dramatically recounts the horrors and the accomplishments of his early years, the daily casual brutality of the white masters, his painful efforts to educate himself, his decision to find freedom or die, and his harrowing but successful escape. Whoever has got a phone ringing may need to answer that. Douglas became a newspaper editor, a political activist, and an eloquent spokesman, spokesperson for the civil rights of African Americans. His life spanned the Civil War, the end of slavery, and the beginning of segregation. He was celebrated internationally as the leading black intellectual of his time. And his story still resonates today. Now, I've used this book because I'm in the process right now of working on a book that deals with race relations. And I need you to pray with me. But I want you to listen to what he said in this narrative. He said, I never saw my mother to know as such more than four, well, let me, let me begin right here. He goes back, no, let me read this. Let me start and get a running start here. He said, my mother's name was Harriet Bailey. She was the daughter of Isaac and Betsy Bailey, both colored and quite dark. My mother was of a darker complexion than either my grandmother or my grandfather. My father was a white man. He was admitted to be such by all I had ever heard speak of my parentage. The opinion was also whispered that my master was my father. But the correctness of this opinion, I know nothing. The means of knowing was withheld from me. My mother and I were separated when I was but an infant. Before I knew her as my mother. It is a common custom in the part of Maryland from which I ran away from to part children from their mothers at a very early age. Frequently, before the child has reached its 12th month, its mother is taken from it 
and hired out on some farm a considerable distance off. The child is placed under the care of an old woman, too old for field labor. For what this separation is done, I do not know, unless it be to hinder the development of the child's affection toward its mother and to blunt and destroy the natural affection of the mother for the child. This is the inevitable result. I never saw my mother to know her as such. More than four or five times in my life, in each of those times was short in derision and duration and at night. She was hired by Mr. Stewart who lived about 12 miles from my home. She made her journeys to see me in the night, traveling the whole distance on foot after the performance of her day's work. She was a field hand. And a whipping is the penalty of not being in the field at sunrise unless a slave has special permission from his or her master. To the contrary, a permission which they seldom get and one that gives to them, one that gives to him that gives it the proud name of being a kind master. I do not recollect of ever seeing my mother by the light of day. She was with me in the night. She would lie down with me, get me to sleep. But long before I wake, she is gone. You may say, Brother Jeff, that's very uncomfortable. But we can never process pain and hurt until we understand it. Let me tell you the key to counseling. The key to counseling is listening. And a lot of times when you're counseling people, you have to shut up and you have to listen. Because when you listen, you begin to hear the pain and the hurt and the sorrow and the bondage that sometimes has been linked in a family for generation after generation after generation after generation. Well, let me turn to President Lincoln. President Abraham Lincoln went to Ford's theater one night. His wife wanted to go. He did not want to go. He was sitting up in the balcony and he was watching this performance, but his mind was a thousand miles away as the country now was beginning to pick up the pieces after the Civil War. The South had surrendered. Union forces had won. And he was beginning to put his life back together. So the president of the United States was in this balcony that he really didn't want to be in. And as he was watching this performance, he leaned over to Mrs. Lincoln and he said, I long to be somewhere where nobody knows me. And he said, I want to go to the Holy Lands to see Jerusalem. A mid-sentence on the word Jerusalem, mid-sentence in that single word, John Wilkes Booth shot him in the back of the head. John Wilkes Booth shouted in Latin in the theater, ever thus to tyrants, the south is avenged. Wow. And he gave his life. 
Most people don't know that John Wilkes Booth was a part of a conspiracy. People are not familiar with this. He was part of a conspiracy. There were actually three men. There were three murders that were to take place that night. First of all, John Wilkes Booth would assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. But the vice president, Andrew Johnson, was also to be killed by a man by the name of uh, George Asherwalt. But he got afraid, I think. He's the, no, he, he, was, he was afraid. He was afraid. The other was the secretary of state, William Seward, who was also to be killed. And so basically what was to happen that night was that the President of the United States would be assassinated, the Vice President of the United States would be assassinated, and the Secretary of State would be assassinated, and the belief was by these conspirators was that it would so destabilize the United States and its government that they could overthrow the government. Now, I've read to you the story of Frederick Douglass out of his narrative is painful. But I want you to know something. He wasn't the only man that was standing. Black and white side by side were standing, trying to right the wrong of a nation and trying to do what was right. You see, I think the problem today in America is we don't know our history. And history has the ability to heal us. We can learn from history. And if we don't learn from it, we repeat it. So history can heal this nation if we know it. But the reality is, and for every one of us in this room, we understand that today this nation is more unstable than it's ever been before. It's very restless. There's racial tension. There's political ideologies clashing. There's capitalism clashing with socialism. There's all kinds of tension in America today. And there is, and I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it, there is a rabid left liberal in America today that's doing everything they can to undermine this nation and destabilize it. Soviet Union said when I was a boy, they said, we will take America without firing a shot. And so this is the world that we live in and a proper view of history, and I would say to African American, a proper view of history is critical. There has to be dialogue, and there has to be an understanding. You know, I, I wrote this down, I think, for the African American. I think there has to be a proper perspective of history as it relates around the slavery movement and around the civil rights movement. Number one, this nation was so divided morally over the buying and selling of human beings that 500 to 750,000 men lost their lives. Let me put that in perspective. They lost more in the Civil War than all the other wars combined through Vietnam. We weren't a nation. We were a nation that was struggling morally and ethically, so much so that we spilt an enormous amount of blood. Over 400,000 Union forces gave their lives, and they were all white. They were all white. 
Why? Because they believed, white men believed, that the buying and selling of human beings was wrong. And the president gave his life because he believed that it was wrong. And they stood. At Gettysburg, over 50,000 men lost their lives. And we can never heal this nation, even racially, until we understand that this was not only a dark blight in our country, we went to war and paid the great cost for freedom. Those songs that we sang a moment ago, Oh, 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 as thousands ran across the fields, as thousands, as men and women dreamed one day of being set free from the bondage of slavery. You know what the tragedy is? Is that the Black History Month in February is how many public school systems would ever require the reading of this book in Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was the two books that initiated and brought this nation to conviction. So when we look at slavery from the New Testament, number one, 50%, over 50% of the Roman Empire were slaves. They were bond servants. They were doulos. One writer said this. He said slaves in this time played an important role in society and in the economy of Rome. Besides manual labor, slaves performed domestic services. They might be employed in highly skilled jobs. For example, they were professional accountants. They were physicians. Slaves could be highly educated in the Roman system. So we have to be careful that we don't take this mindset of this dark cloud that still looms over America and somehow force it into the scripture. Most slaves in New Testament times came either from POWs, prisoners of war during Romans wars, Rome's wars, they came from debt, or they came as criminals. You know, I wrote this down. I want you to listen. The black African slave trade market originated in North and West Africa. And I believe that North and West Africa is still under the judgment of God. There's not an African American in this nation that would trade places with an African in North or West Africa. It's one of the most difficult missionary assignments that you could possibly have. The weather is unbelievable. The unrest, political unrest is unbelievable. The economies of those nations have completely crashed. And if anything, I believe that North and West Africa still stands under the judgment of God for their part in American history and the slavery and the trade slave trade. European nations, Portugal, Portuguese, the British, the French, the Spanish, the Dutch were all involved in going to North and West Africa and buying 
uh, buying the slaves and then therefore transferring them to the American market. Let me say something. No, I, don't, I believe every one of those European nations are just, most of which today are insignificant in the economies and in the daily discussions in the world today. In other words, who talks about Portugal, Spain, France? Even England is becoming more peripheral. Who talks about the Dutch today? The reality is, God says, judgment is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. I believe that God has blessed America because America lost half a million to three-quarters of a million men and women who gave their life almost exclusively, all men and all white. Because they refused to accept slavery and would go to war. In Paul's day, the Roman economy, the market system was built primarily on slaves. And, for, and as I said before, most of us in this room, if we were living during the time of the Roman system, we would be slaves. The Bible has gotten a bad rap, I think, a lot of times in this area. But let me say this, and let me read again something that, um, that Douglas says. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, this, this probably bothered me as much as anything. He wrote in his narrative, in his autobiography, he, I, I assert most unhesitantly that the religion of the South is the mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the, of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shadow under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholders find the strongest protection for I were I to be again reduced to the chains of slavery next to that enslavement, listen to this, it's got me. I should regard being the slave of a religious master the greatest calamity that could befall me. For all slaveholders with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders were the worst. The Bible's gotten a bad rap. We come to a passage like this, we don't know what to do with it. But I want to remind you that in Exodus 21, verse 2, the Bible said that a slave was to be set free in the seventh year. In Exodus 21, 16, it said anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Do you know what the slavery, the slave trade in North and West Africa, do you know what the penalty was in the Old Testament? The penalty was death to the criminal. In the Old Testament, if a slave was hit and lost his tooth, he was free. If he lost his eye, he was free. He was granted his freedom even for a tooth if, the, if his master beat him, caused hurt in any way. But I wrote this down. Race-based slavery as seen in America's history is not that of Scripture and cannot be confused with such. Does that make sense? So what are we to take from this passage? What we are to take from it is simply this. If, if Paul had written this letter today, he would not have worded it this way. He would have look, looked at our capitalistic society, he would have looked at our employer-employee relationships, and he would have basically said this, he would have said, Titus, teach employees to be subject to their bosses, to their employers and everything. Try to please them. Don't talk back to them. 
don't steal from them when you're on the job, but show to them in that workplace that you can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God, our Savior, attractive to employers who employ us and bosses and management who may not be believers. Does that make sense? So number one, your job, listen, your job is your mission field. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Boy, that was real convincing. Your job is your mission field. You see, last week when Reggie walked us through this, he talked about the relationships of family. He talked about within a congregation, old teaching young, old men teaching young men, old women teaching young women. He talked about the makeup of a, converse, of a congregation. But now Paul says to Titus, Titus, outside of your family, outside of your marriage, outside of your home, the most vested relationships you and I have are on the job. Your job and the relationships in your work environment, listen, is your community, it's your mission field. That's your mission field. That's a divine appointment by God. Every one of us who have a working job, if you're a school teacher, that classroom is your mission field. The parents of those children are your mission field. Whatever office you work in, that's your mission field, and you ought to be above reproach in your work environment. Most of us are getting up today, and we are dragging through our mission field, not realizing that God has given us a golden opportunity. And for some people, they're all business. Let me tell you, a Christian who is all business, worried only about the bottom line dollar, I wrote this down, they are disobeying the Great Commission, they have failed to see the strategic placing of their life in that workplace. Your job, where you work, the people you work with, and that's for young people who are in school. Every one of you young people listen. Your mission field is a classroom. Your mission field is West. It doesn't matter Wingfield. It doesn't matter where you go to school. It doesn't matter if you're in college. Your mission field is your school that you attend. You may be the only Bible some of those kids will ever read. So people say, you know, it's so dark where I, where I work. What, what did Jesus say, you and I? What are we? The light of the world. You say, well, it's so dark. You know what Jesus would say to you? If you get up in the morning, you say, well, Lord, you just don't understand. You don't understand how dark it is where I work. You know what Jesus would look at you and say? He would say, listen, I've got you there by strategic, divine appointment. You're the only gospel they'll ever hear. You're the only Bible they'll ever read. Is it dark? That's why you're there. You're the light. I'm in you, illuminating that place with your presence. Oh, but God, you don't know the kind of people that I'm working with. They're hard people to work with. Well, you think your bunch is hard. You join Reggie and I. I tell you what, bottom line is you can't get people to pick up a piece of paper in a parking lot in most cities. That's the truth. 
And the one who amened is the one who in my 20, about 23 years of being here has been one of the most low-maintenance church members I've ever met in my life. She just does her job. She does what God has called her to do, whether it's putting flower beds around that sign, whether it's cleaning up these things, whether it's keeping the homeless from stealing our, our hoses, whatever it is, I don't know. Whether it's teaching children down in the preschool. Low maintenance, just doing the job, just doing what God's called her to do. You know how long she worked before she retired? Over 40 years. Same company. And Reggie and I went to her retirement. And when we went to her retirement, there was nothing but respect, love, tears in that room as people gathered around there to let her know they were going to miss her. Let me ask you something. If you didn't show up to your job, would anybody miss you? Well, you may say, well, you know, these are hard people. Well, number one, make sure you're not mirroring their behavior. You know, a lot of times we get a bad attitude. We think, well, two can play this game, tit for tat. You kick my dog, I'll kick your cat. But you know, God didn't call you to mirror the behavior of the people that you work with. Now, this doesn't mean that you're a doormat. This doesn't mean that you don't have certain rights and you deserve fair treatment. But you don't need to mirror the people that are in that workplace. Number two, again, you're the light of the world. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit living in you and living in me. You are God's temple. You say, well, did you go to church yesterday? But the reality is you are the church where you work. You are a spirit-filled temple that is entered into that work environment and when people see you come in, listen, they should feel the light and the presence of Christ coming into that environment. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and if you don't quench the Holy Spirit, grieve the Holy Spirit, God can use you greatly. Now buckle your pew belts. You will be held accountable to the lost men and women in your workplace that you never bothered to share Christ with. You get ready. You're the salt, light, and yeast. God puts you in that work environment. He puts you with people that are dark and difficult, and they're hard. And God says to you and I, he says, listen, that's your mission field. That's the Great Commission. I want you to invest in that workplace. Because, listen, if you and I work next to people, and they one day go to hell because you and I were too cowardly to ever share Christ with them, or we were rude and unkind and moody. How many moody Christians? How many rude Christians? How many unkind Christians? How many dishonest Christians in a workplace have ruined the possibility of taking the gospel into that environment? This is what Paul's saying. Number three, sow seeds. Be patient. Second Timothy chapter 2. Paul told Timothy, he said, Timothy, you're like a farmer. You're sowing seeds, seeds of the gospel. The Great Commission says, as you go, make disciples. It's natural, and I'll close in a moment. It's natural, it's not forced. When you're a Christian, it just naturally comes out of you. You're just naturally who you are. If you're light, you're just natural light, natural salt, natural yeast. Yeast, you just put people at ease. You know when the police pull you over and they got that at night and they got that big beam of light and they shine it on you? That's not who you are. 
It's just like a candle that just naturally illuminates the environment around it. You don't embarrass employees by this spiritual prima donna, this showmanship. Well, well, let me pray for you. I got one preacher that every time we're in a restaurant, we're eating, and he says, let us pray, everybody bows their head. You know, this is not drawing attention to yourself. You're just naturally light, salt, and leaf yeast. You're just naturally a Christian. You just look at somebody and you, and you say to them, you say, uh, are you all right? at you and tear their eye gets slightly watery and you know you tapped your nerve and say come on come on come on let me would you mind if I pray for you well me and my husband had a fight this morning me and my wife had a fight my teenage son is caught with drugs this weekend it's just been hell and they begin to break down you know hey everybody let's gather around so we can pray for this person here no, you're just quietly slipping a shoulder, saying, come on in. I love, um, I love David Robinson, the great basketball player for San, San Antonio Spurs. It was said that he was in a restaurant one day eating with his family, this big African-American great Hall of Famer. And this little bitty African-American woman came over and she was holding a funeral bulletin. And she said, Mr. Robinson, she said, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but my brother died and we just had his funeral. And she said, he loved the Spurs so much and he loved you. She said, would you, would you sign this? I'd just like to put it away. He looked at her in a big old smile. David Robinson is such a class, and he signed that name. And then he said, would, would you mind if I pray for you? And he reached those big hands that just cradled her little, went halfway up her elbow, you know, just his big old hands. And this big African-American Hall of Famer began to pray, and it said that all of a sudden, quiet came over the whole restaurant, and people signed up. And you know what? was natural listen your mission field is your work environment you should have a servant heart you should walk into your workplace outwardly focused listening for people who may be needy who may be hurting you're listening for you're listening for pain and hurt you're wanting to minister to people you're not going in there complaining and griping carrying on endlessly complaining about the workplace you're not sitting around gossiping about the boss or the owner tearing down people you're in the business of bringing the gospel and when you and I are about that in our workplaces our mission field we change a nation well I'm going to stop there I want you to stand. You may say, well, you know, Brother Jeff, this has really been a different kind of sermon. Well, let me, let me say this. First of all, our nation right now struggles with racial tension. 
for the white men and women in this room, you need to understand this. It wasn't that long ago. Okay? It wasn't that many generations ago that black children were taken from their mother and not given the opportunity to be raised by their biological father. A lot of black women were nothing more than brood mares. The institution of marriage, the institution of family and home, listen, was completely broken apart. And it hasn't been that long ago. So for the white men and women in this room, it might be good to say, God, let me step back and try to grasp and understand the heritage of my African-American brothers and sisters. Let me try to grasp the pain and the hurt that's been, that's been around for a little while, but not For black men and women, African-American men and women, never forget that the Civil War was fought and the deaths outside of about 30,000 African-Americans, all of those deaths were white men. In other words, anywhere from half a million to 750,000 white men gave their life. And you may say, well, that includes the South, yeah. But remember, about 400,000 were Union soldiers, white men, who gave their lives. And remember that the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, declaring freedom to slaves, to black men and women, Remember that in the middle of the word Jerusalem that he was shot and killed by a radical tyrant. For black or white, all of us here, to understand the heart of each other, we have to process each other's pain and hurt. We have to understand our history. We have to realize, too, that the Bible had very clear statements to be made about the kidnapping and the selling of men and women. It's been misrepresented, mispreached. It's our responsibility to correct that. In Titus chapter 2, Paul's talking to the market system of his day. If he were talking today, it would be employer-employee. Now, I leave you with this. Your mission field is your workplace. Sheila and I, yesterday, we went into University Medical Center, room 216. We knocked on the door, and there was a man there, a homeless man, room 216 at University Medical. He was laying there. He has a trach. He has oxygen. He was laying on a bed. I walked in, and when he heard my voice, he turned, and he looked toward me. Slight turn on a corner of his mouth. I walked over to him, put my hand on his shoulder. I said, T, I said, Sheila and I are here. I said, I didn't know you were in here, but somebody called the church. His hands are all bound in big wrappings. And he went, 
meaning he did. Reggie will tell you that we are probably his next of kin. We're all he has. That's ministry. It's to go to somebody that can't give you nothing back and to put your hand on their shoulder and say, I love you. You know, there's nothing in that room. You know what this church ought to do? We ought to put a plant in that room. And we ought to remind University Medical Center, because the nurse, she kind of was shocked when he came alive. Like she kind of looked and she laughed. Like he does know what's going on. Sweet, precious Belle visited Sue first and then let us know where to find her. Your workplace is your mission field. Never forget it. Just like that. And you can't be a good missionary until you say one. And you can't be a good missionary if you're not walking in the will of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray, dear Lord, now as we go into this hymn of invitation, God, you speak to our hearts. God, do what only you can do. I know this message has been painful. It's been different. But Lord, may we learn and glean and grow and understand the heart of each other. Uh, everybody look this way and we'll say amen. Sheila and I, last two Wednesday nights ago, we walked out. Of course, we were tickled pink because Marge was fixing soup. But we walked out, and we looked out at this parking lot, and it was packed with vehicles, and people were everywhere, black and white, young and old, and they were laughing and talking. Sheila walked out, and she looked, and she said, this is what it's all about. I've said to you, I love him like my brother. There'll be black and white men that will carry my coffin when I die. You and I know the power of healing that comes through the blood and the fellowship of Jesus Christ. This is what God intends. This is what God wants. And for every one of us in this room, we understand that. Live that out in your workplace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You come. You come. I'm here at the front. Reggie's here. Ledge is here. You need to come to the altar. You come.